What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. And here's what's ahead. A stunning comeback as the Dow races a more than 700-point drop today. We're going to look at the tug of war between the bulls and the bears and see who's got the upper hand now. Plus, Beijing is adopting fresh wartime measures amid a coronavirus outbreak there. This is almost half of U.S. states are reporting a rise in COVID cases as our economies open up. But is the case count really what investors should be watching? We'll explore that. And there's something happening in the market that we haven't seen since the late 1990s. We'll break that down and tell you what it could also mean for the rally. We begin with the seesaw market, though, and Dominic Chu is here with the numbers. Dom? More than 700 would be 762 points. Kelly, to your point here, that was the low of the session so far for the Dow Industrials. We're only down about 59 right now. We're going to call this just about the highs of the session so far. But again, down 762 points. That was the low point in the Dow Industrials so far today. Just about flat for the S&P 500. And the Nasdaq continuing that relative strength, relative strength over the rest of the market with a nice move here of half a percent to the upside. Now, one of the themes that we've been tracking pretty closely is the outperformance of the Nasdaq. Also, shorter term, the small cap stocks, because they've been outperforming today. Look at the Russell 2000 ETF up one and a half percent today. QQQ is just about flat. And then the mid caps up a half a percent as well. Something to keep an eye on. And then watch what's happening with the software stocks. Many of the covid related work at home plays have been strong ever since the pandemic lows. But check out this particular ETF that tracks Software stocks, IGB is the ticker, up 26% over the course of the last year. And look at this, DocuSign, up 220% this year so far. Kelly, we've seen a massive move higher in many of these stocks. So watch software. It continues to be a hot sector. I'll send things back over to you. Yeah, DocuSign replacing United and the NASDAQ 100, such a sign of the times, Dom Banks. And as the rally in stocks has generally stumbled over the past several sessions, is the free pass for investors now over? And if so, what will it take to drive the next leg of this rebound? Let's bring in Mike Santoli for more thoughts on that. Mike? Yeah, Kelly, at least that's the question that gets raised. Is this so-called free pass perhaps expiring or at least in sight of doing that? Uh, Just for context, at this morning's low, the S&P 500 was down more than 8% in a week. So I think almost everybody could say the market was right for some kind of pullback with a record rally that we had over 50 days. But the free pass, which was a freedom from having to worry about complications for the reopening, because it was going to be a while before you saw some persistent infection numbers that were going to get in the way of that. Maybe that's in sight of uh, of expiring. You also have the July 31st sort of fiscal deadline where perhaps you might not uh, have the same support you had for consumers. Unemployment extended benefits might be going away at that point. That gets nearer. And then, of course, people are starting to talk about implications for the election, though we probably are a little ways from really that being a day-to-day market swing factor. What it's going to take, arguably, is not just less bad news, but the realities of a potential accelerating economic recovery is probably going to have to become more evident. Good news is earnings forecasts for the S&P 500 have actually curled higher in the last couple of weeks. So that does show that, in fact, if stocks have led uh, reality, that the, that the uh, earnings estimates are at least going in the right direction slowly at this point. Kelly. Mike, I just I'm curious what your what are your thoughts on the retail participation and 
not just how big it is, but the nature of it. You know, if we and I've seen some data comparing this to stock buybacks and saying if it's as much of a force as that used to be in the rally, well, the stock buybacks were a lot more persistent, a lot more regular, a lot more reliable. I doubt retail investors, if people thinking about market sports, I doubt retail investors are going to be that way around this time around. Well, certainly not in gross dollar terms or in the steadiness of the flows. Trading, very short-term trading, is for the most part a zero-sum game. So, yes, you might have more participation. I think it's more of a um, kind of a, a side angle on this entire rally. It's not the driver of it, and it's also not something which I don't think in itself undermines it. You might get some froth in certain spots, but I don't think it invalidates the fact that we've had this genuine rally off an extremely depressed level in, in the overall market, and folks are going along for the ride. I don't think they're either the driver or the thing that really short circuits this thing. All right. Fair enough. Mike, it's good to see you. Thank you, sir. Mike Santoli with his thoughts on this market. And stocks have been selling off lately on concerns, especially about the renewed spread of coronavirus. But could the weakness this time be more muted because it's unlikely to spur shutdowns? And what happens if people start voluntarily staying home again? Joining me now are Michael Yoshikami, the CEO of Destination Wealth Management, and Barry Knapp is managing partner at Ironsides Macroeconomics. Welcome to you both. Michael, I haven't seen you in a while. And, and what are your thoughts on the market after the huge run-up that we've seen? And as Mike alluded to, I mean, we were down 8% in a week on the S&P at the lows this morning. Yeah, it's a sentiment-driven market. You know, Kelly, I think that what you're seeing right now is uh, markets are going to be really beat up one way or the other uh, regarding what's happening with headlines, what's happening with the virus news. I think the, the, the news uh, lately has been that, wow, we're going to open and actually there's going to be a spike in virus. You see Florida's numbers going up. Is there going to be a vaccine? Is there not going to be a vaccine? I think that's really what it comes down to. It's all about the virus news. But here's the key, I think, Kelly. If you're looking at this from a short-term um, game, that's a, that's a game that's tough to play. If you look at it from an intermediate-term game, maybe a one-year time frame, I think there's a pretty high probability we'll have a vaccine. So I see these sort of pullbacks as opportunities to position in stocks that maybe are way oversold. It's difficult, it's Barry. Difficult. I mean, all of us want there to be a vaccine, and at the same time, it feels almost silly to just kind of hope for that and, and use that as some kind of strategy. But do we have a choice? Barry, what are your Barry. thoughts on this market? Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, I didn't realize you were coming to me. Um, no, as far as as far as the, the virus goes, um, look, they, you know, there's been this adage from the politicians, we're going to follow the science. OK, well, if you're following the science, the science no longer supports, from places like Johns Hopkins, shutting down the entire economy. The science supports masks. So if there's another round of outbreaks, and, and I don't accept the idea that there really is. I mean, you know, hospitalizations in Texas compared to 29 million people in the state are still not really all that high. But that notwithstanding, um, if there is another round of concern around all this, what's much more likely is that you have mandatory masks. And that will not have the same economic implications as shutting down entire economies do. So I, I just don't view it as likely to have the same implications as the first go around did. Furthermore, if you look at death rates versus um, case rates, you can see the treatment's gotten much, much better. They're going down in all those states that have had supposed increases in the uh, or have had increases in the number of new cases. From a sentiment perspective, though, Kelly, what's fascinating to me is how after a one-week sell-off or three-day sell-off, really following the Fed through Friday, you had measures of risk 
the shape of the VIX volatility curve, uh, the term, you know, which is the term structure of all the premium you pay for downside puts, the level of the VIX, all those things spiked back to really extreme levels. So that's a way of saying that positioning became very negative very quick. Yeah. And that's why yeah. we, we wrote this weekend. We thought we would probably get a rebound early this week. And sure enough, we're back in positive territory today. So let me ask both of you, Michael, you first, if you would be stock picking in this environment, you know, going with broad baskets, uh, what's your strategy? Uh, well, I think obviously, um, you know, we, we have analysts on board and we're obviously making individual stock selections. But I think that what's important is investors recognize that trends really are going to be a huge issue within sectors. So you're going to have sectors like technology. Uh, you're going to have sectors like the tra parts of the travel industry. Uh, and certainly even um, names like retail, uh, maybe names in retail that aren't really uh, struggling, like some of the ones that you've seen in bankruptcy, but there are going to be survivors. So I think that what's really key here, in my view, is to make sure that you have the sectors right. Healthcare is going to be a driver. They're no longer villains anymore. I think healthcare is going to be allowed to have huge amounts of profit. Uh, unlike what happened to the energy company, companies a couple years ago, in order to go out and find vaccines for whatever other illnesses are out there. So I think sector positioning is absolutely critical and is something we're focusing on right now. Interesting. And Barry, same question to you. Even if you're sort of more optimistic about the uh, economy, the market, the rebound this time around, what happens for those industries, the airlines might be one of them, where business is still down 20, 30 percent by the end of the year? Yeah, I, I struggle to buy any industry that the government lent money to. You know, the banking sector in the last business cycle did have a ferocious rebound early on, but struggled throughout the business cycle. The same will likely be true for airlines this go around. What's happening, though, is fascinating. Uh, and the other guests just hit on it is you're getting technology innovation adoption across a range of sectors. Healthcare is probably the most critical. It's been the biggest drag on the U.S. economy for almost four decades. Profit margins have been falling for three decades. That integration of technology into that sector is going to remake the U.S. economy uh, and, and potentially drive productivity going forward. It was already happening um, in you know, industries broadly before this whole um, coronavirus hit. You saw productivity average 1% for the first eight years of the recovery and then average 1.8, right. driven by technology innovation adoption. So that's what I bought on the morning of the 23rd. I bought software and I bought healthcare. And that's what I think investors, any opportunity they get to buy those sectors, that's what I would buy. Well, it'd be great if that was one of the long-term things came out of this. More productivity, better profits uh, in that sector. Such an important part of the whole economy. Thank you guys both. Uh, and certainly you both agree on that, too. Michael Yoshikami and Barry Knapp talking through the market today. Now we turn to today's landmark ruling by the Supreme Court that workers can't be fired for being gay or transgender. Elon Moy joins us now with more. Elon? Well, Kelly, the Supreme Court ruled today that the landmark Civil Rights Act of 1964 covers sexual orientation in addition to race, gender and religion. Specifically, the court found that an employer who intentionally penalizes an employee for being homosexual or transgender also violates Title VII of the Act. Now, the court's decision was six to three, with the majority opinion being written by one of the most conservative justices, Justice Neil Gorsuch, who was appointed by President Trump. Now, the White House has not released an official statement on the decision just yet, but we have heard from Apple CEO Tim Cook. He tweeted, grateful for today's decision by the Supreme Court. LGBTQ people deserve equal treatment in the workplace and throughout society. And today's decision further underlines that federal law protects their right to fairness. 
In addition, Alphabet CEO Sundar Pichai announced that Google.org will be donating $1.2 million to LGBTQ organizations around the world, as well as donating an additional $1.2 million to the Trevor Project. Kelly? All right, Elon, a big day. Thanks very much, Elon Moy, with the very latest from the Supreme Court there. Take a quick break. Coming up, nearly half of U.S. states are now seeing a spike in COVID cases. Is it a result of more testing or should we be concerned that a new wave or a continuation of the first wave is upon us? Plus, the elephant in the room for Main Street's reopening is liability as lawsuits are already beginning tied to the coronavirus. We'll have all the details on that next. And parked airplanes are slowly heading back to the skies. It's not necessarily translating into profits, though. We'll break down why. Here's a look at the airline stocks. If you're looking at today's turnaround, boy, this is the sector that has seen it. Down 9% at the open this morning. All but United are in the green right now. We're back in two. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back. The airlines have been adding more flights lately, but despite more planes in the sky, they're still losing money on pretty much all of those flights. Phil LeBeau is here with more on that for us. Phil? And Kelly, they're losing money because the load factors or the percentage of seats that are filled on each of those flights still well below where they need. Generally speaking, you need to have about 75% of the seats filled on every flight in order to at least break even. They're not close to that. They're probably closer to 40, 50%, depending on the flight, on the route, et cetera. So when you look at the airplanes that are coming back into service right now, keep in mind that the airlines are doing this in part because they are seeing greater demand, but they're also capping how many people can be on these uh, flights. You've got Delta adding 64, or American, excuse me, adding 64 flights in the month of June. Delta adding 16, and Frontier adding 20. Why, again, are they doing this? Because more people are flying. Not a ton more, but there are more. The daily passenger screening levels from the TSA crossed over 500,000 on Thursday. Three of the last four days have had at least 500,000 passengers, including 544,000 yesterday, the highest since March. I want to look at some specific stocks here. Let's start first off with Southwest. It's daily cash burn, down about $25 million for the second quarter. That's considered, generally speaking, the best in the industry. And then you've got American, Delta, and United. Now, they're also bringing their daily cash burn down as well. They're down at about $40 million a day in the month of June. And speaking of United, some news from the company earlier today, lining up a couple of important loans, or at least one that they've definitely locked in, a $5 billion loan that'll be backed by its Mileage Plus loyalty program. That will give the airline about $17 billion in liquidity come September. The other part of this is $4.5 billion, Kelly, that they expect to get through the Treasury Department, though they have not locked that in just yet. Real quickly, Phil, what kind of passenger levels are we talking for these airlines to stop losing money on all of these flights? 
You mean in total? Well, you want to get to 75 percent, generally speaking, on every flight. They're not there yet. And remember, a lot of these are capped at 65, 66 percent because they've said we're going to keep the middle seat empty at least through July or in some cases into September. So if you look at the overall number, Kelly, that 544,000, that's got to be far higher. I mean, we're down 79 percent compared to the same time last year. You've got to get it much closer to maybe down 20 percent, 25 percent to even get close to break even. Yeah. Like you said, we're not, we are definitely not there yet, uh, even though the numbers are picking up. Phil, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Phil LeBeau on a big turnaround day for the airlines, which had been sharply lower. Now they're hanging in there. As businesses begin to reopen across the country, they not only face the possibility of someone getting sick at their office, but also the risk of a lawsuit should that happen. In fact, it's starting already. Kate Rogers joins me now with a closer look at the legal challenges facing businesses of all kinds. Kate? Hi, Kelly. Well, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and 200 other trade groups around the country have reached out to Congress asking for temporary and targeted relief legislation related to the pandemic. These protections would be for businesses and nonprofits that follow public health guidelines and would protect companies from COVID-19 related lawsuits that you just mentioned, among other threats. The International Franchise Association says it's tracked 1,000 lawsuits around the country against businesses tied to COVID already. It sent its own petition to Congress with seven thousand signatures from business owners nationwide having to face lawsuits because someone got sick even though you may be taking the best available uh, precautions that are that are in the, in the uh, that, that are widely publicly described you end up uh, in a situation of near hopelessness but for lawmakers, there's no easy decision here. CNBC and change research among likely voters nationwide shows a real split when it comes to liability in COVID. Nearly 40 percent think that businesses should be protected against liability claims. But then, Kelly, nearly half think that workers and customers should be able to sue a business over COVID exposure. Back over to you. This has been a big priority uh, at the Senate, I think, under Leader McConnell, who was warned that an outbreak of lawsuits could be like a second wave of the coronavirus itself. And my question is about tracing. You know, let's say somebody claims that they got coronavirus because they went, you know, went into your retail shop or your restaurant. How is the business going to be able to prove definitively that they did or didn't? We talked to a franchisee that brought up exactly that. He said there's no way to prove whether they got it here at the restaurant next door if they got it last week. And that's why they want this liability protection, because one lawsuit like that could knock out a business, uh, you know, that's already been potentially devastated by the pandemic. But again, when you're in Congress, how is this an easy decision? Because it's nearly split half and half between what likely voters think should actually happen here, Kelly. Absolutely. But like you said, if the companies think they don't have that protection, I don't even know how they reopen. Uh, anyway, we'll follow it. Kate, thanks very much. It's great reporting. We appreciate it. Kate Rogers with the latest there. Coming up, China is experiencing a new COVID outbreak, forcing Beijing to adopt quote-unquote wartime measures. We'll have the details and the impact it could have on the global economy. Plus, one market watcher says there's a part of this market acting exactly like the late 1990s. He'll join us to explain. And remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in a couple. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Exchange. Time for our CNBC News Update with Sue Herrera. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Hello, everyone. Here's what's happening at this hour. 
Texas reporting a record number of new coronavirus hospitalizations, almost 2,300 on Sunday. It is the sixth new daily high in the past seven days. You can go to CNBC.com to see which other states are hospitalizing more COVID-19 patients. Borders between several European countries reopening for air and land traffic today after more than three months of closures. But the nations of the European Union are not expected to open up to visitors outside the continent until at least the beginning of next month. And nearly 4,000 Black Lives Matter protesters marching through Tokyo on Sunday. The demonstrators calling for an end to racial discrimination in the wake of the death of George Floyd. The protesters held signs with slogans such as Racism is a pandemic. You are up to date. That is the news update this hour. Kelly, I'll see you next hour. All right, Sue, thanks very much. While coronavirus cases are rising in uh, some states here at home, Beijing is experiencing new cases and reinstating isolation measures because of it. Eunice Yoon joins us live from Beijing with the very latest. Eunice, I believe they canceled schools and have just taken some pretty drastic measures there. Yeah, that's right, uh, Kelly. Uh, Beijing says that it's in wartime mode because it's battling its worst outbreak that it's seen since February. 79 cases were confirmed and traced to a wholesale food market, which is Asia's largest and happens to be here in the capital. Uh, The uh, capital has shut that market as well as another, uh, closed some schools in the area, and also put 40,000 residents under lockdown. Uh, 76,000 people have been tested so far, and half of the capital's districts now have been reporting new cases. Now, the health officials here have uh, said that the origins of the, the outbreak of this particular cluster are still under investigation. However, the genome sequencing suggests that the strain is of a, quote, European direction and that the preliminary judgment is that it is from overseas. The state media has been reporting that the virus was detected on a chopping block at the market with imported salmon. And because that has been discussed in the state media quite a bit now, um, there has been a reaction. In fact, European suppliers of salmon have said that the Chinese market has been closed off to their fish. Uh, The official media, though, has been calling for calm. There has been some panicked um, some panicked people uh, when it comes to salmon. So uh, the uh, state media just in the past hour has been calling for calm, saying that this um, uh, being rational is actually much more helpful when it comes to the economy. Yeah, I have there's so many uh, questions here, Eunice, but one of them is I'm thinking about the contrast between China's response and what the U.S. is doing. So here, the, the main concern is not overwhelming the healthcare system in places where that seems like a possibility, doing more drastic measures in areas where it doesn't seem as likely uh, being more relaxed about it. Beijing seems to have a zero tolerance policy towards having any new cases at all. Well, it does have a, a zero tolerance um, a policy, but, but it's also I think that the approach has been uh, quite surgical. So, um, for example, in the capital, it's not as though the entire capital has been shut down. Some schools in the area that are closest to that market, for example, have been closed. But the rest of the schools are still running uh, normally. Uh, there, the, in terms of the, the wider impact on the capital, there are more temperature checks, for example, for our office, uh, for example, but um, they're still uh, relatively mild compared to the restrictions in that specific area of the cluster. 
Interesting. All right. That's helpful. Eunice, thanks so much. We always appreciate it. Eunice Yoon live in Beijing for us. And as they work to prevent a resurgence there, nearly half of U.S. states are seeing a jump in cases here, leading many to wonder if we were too quick to think the first wave of the coronavirus was cresting. For more, I'm joined by Dr. Carlos Del Rio, professor and executive associate dean of Emory University School of Medicine. Dr. Del Rio, welcome. Thank you. What what have you primarily gleaned from the numbers? Is this a case of more testing? Is it clearly spreading in these states? If so, how badly uh, are, should we worry about the healthcare system being overwhelmed at this point or not? Well, I think we're seeing a couple things. We're clearly seeing more testing. The U.S. is doing about a half a million tests a day, and that as you do more testing, you're going to find more cases. But also because we have relaxed restrictions, there is more people out. And there is going to be more transmission. And I think what we need to realize is that the virus has not gone, that we have decided to go ahead and open the economy and open things for, for, for very clear reasons. But the virus has not gone. So therefore, we have to continue practicing safe distance. We have to continue wearing masks and we have to continue face masks and we have to continue washing our hands. We need to be as careful as possible because the one thing you don't want to do is you don't want to get infected, the one thing you want to do is you don't want to get sick. The U.S. is, as you show in that graph, pretty much in a plateau of about 20,000 uh, new cases per day. But we are, that graph of the U.S. is a combination of states like New York, where the cases have really gone down significantly, and states like California, Texas, Florida, North Carolina, where the state, the cases are really going up. Right. So when you look at that plateau, you're really seeing a mix of different things together. What kind of reaction, and this is important for investors to think about, uh, obviously, what kind of response do you expect? Do you think any of these states where there are more cases are going to adopt more shutdown measures? Do you think shutdowns are completely off the table? Do you think that mask wearing and other kinds of uh, preventative measures is going to be sufficient? You know, if everybody were a mask, if, if everybody were a mask in public, if everybody did the right things, if we didn't go to events of more than you know, 25 to 50 individuals, if we kept safe distance, if we kept hand hygiene, I think that will be sufficient. I think adapting, uh, you know, lockdowns again, you know, it's a little bit like trying to put, you know, toothpaste back in the tube. It's going to be really hard. And and I think the economic pain has been very significantly. Mm -hmm. So so I think we really need to think about how do we prevent, we are going to see cases, we got to prevent outbreaks. We have to prevent cases spreading to the point of outbreaks. And we have to prevent, we have to decrease cases among the most vulnerable who result in hospitalizations and death. That is going to be the key uh, function of public health. Do you think there people are more knowledgeable about protecting those in nursing homes, uh, the vulnerable population self-isolating to some degree? And I want to ask a sort of unrelated question, and it's actually about the NBA and their bubble strategy to play games this summer, which some of the players are becoming more concerned about. You know, here in New York, they've said no sleepaway camps. You can only do day camps. Any scenario in which people are kind of gathering in one place uh, for a period of time seems to be seen as dangerous. And isn't that exactly what the NBA's plan is in Orlando? Well, you know, as long as they can keep people in a bubble together, I think it's going to be okay. But of course, you know how difficult that is. I mean, what we clearly have learned in this virus is being outside is better than being inside. Being in crowded places is, is, is worse than being in non-crowded places. And I think you have to stay, you know, there's a very nice uh, description of an outbreak from a calling center in South Korea that pretty much everybody in that section got infected on that floor. But it didn't infect other floors. So it wasn't so much the elevator. It was the closest of being in one place. So I think we're learning a lot about this virus transmission. We have to remember at the end of the day, it's a virus. It's not a monster. 
We know how it's transmitted. We know how to prevent it. And I think if we did the right things as population, we could clearly slow transmission significantly. The problem is most of us have said, I've had enough with this virus. Mm. And that's and the virus hasn't been told that. We have to remember that the virus is still around. It's highly transmissible and could produce a lot of disease and death in the coming months. Yeah, no, it's exhausting, uh, all of this, and yet the threat is real. So here's my final question for people, especially investors, trying to figure out uh, what's going to be happening with business and the economy. What is the most important number to follow? Is it the case count, which seems like it can be inflated by just people getting more tests done? I think Should it's we be watching the hospitalization of- rate, or what would you, what's most important to I you? Would, I would recommend, if you look at atlstrong.org, Org. It's a set website we set up with the mayor of Atlanta. And if you look there at the dashboard of things to follow, the things you need to follow are actually there. You need to follow cases. You need to follow the mortality. You need to follow ER utilization, hospitalizations, and you need to follow your ICU capacity. If you follow those things, I think you're in a good position to know where you stand and what you need to do. All right. So a little bit of everything, uh, which makes sense. Dr. Carlos Del Rio, thanks so much for your time and thoughts today. Happy to be with you. We appreciate it very much. Coming up, will the second half of 2020 be a struggle for venture capital? And if money's put to work, what kind of companies will attract investors? We'll explore that. Plus, a rare interview with hedge fund manager Jonathan Litt, why he says the New York office market is facing an existential hurricane and he's betting big against it. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Exchange. Friday's massive sell-off had investors from Wall Street to Silicon Valley reassessing their outlooks for the rest of the year. If we are headed for another pullback in the public markets, what does that mean for private markets and future IPOs? And what are the lingering effects of this pandemic in Silicon Valley? Here to unpack the state of venture capital is Charles Hudson, the founder and managing partner of Precursor Ventures. Charles, it's great to have you. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. First of all, does this immediately mean that funding dries up uh, in Silicon Valley? Does it accelerate it for companies with kind of new technology in the, in the new markets? What, do you, what are you seeing play out here? I think venture capitalists, like everyone, are trying to sort out what does the new normal look like. The good news for venture capital funds is many of us raise money from folks who have long-term pools of capital, foundations, endowments, et cetera. Obviously, the volatility in their own portfolios impacts their interest in venture. So I think if you've already got a fund that's raised, you're probably in good shape. But as you can imagine, the people who are making these asset allocation decisions are trying to read the market just like we are. And in terms of companies, I think right now, if you have a company that's levered to distributed or remote work, telemedicine, things like that, those are categories that are very popular with investors right now. Are you seeing a a raft of new companies trying to fundraise off the back of that? Absolutely. And I'd put them into two broad buckets. One bucket is companies that previously had, you know, bricks and mortar or offline businesses that are trying to rapidly adjust to this new world. And others are people who've been working on distributed or remote technology for some time period. And it feels like now's the moment for them. Yeah. And like you said, they're probably sitting there thinking, "Okay, well, we can at least kind of prove our case. I'm curious if there's going to be a longer term kind of bad effect, a lingering bad effect on the kinds of companies that would have gotten funding maybe five years ago, but won't get it in that in this environment today. Maybe they just have weaker business models. They're not as profitable. They don't have that path to profitability. Do you think that's the case? I do think that in general, the sentiment in venture has switched a bit from maybe a model of growth at all costs and go, go, go to one that's more about making sure that the unit economics and the fundamentals of the business make sense. So I do think if you were a business that needed tons and tons, you know, tens or 
hundreds of millions of dollars in venture capital to prove out your business model, those businesses feel tougher to finance today. So you might get fewer of those. And maybe that's a good thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we've been burned a little bit in the transition from uh, private to public markets for some of these business models. Charles, while I have you, I want to ask you as well about diversity in your field, which is pretty poor. Um, how would you describe people's awareness about it, your efforts to kind of uh, fundraise as a minority-led firm yourself? I would say black and brown venture capitalists have felt that the industry has a terrible record on diversity for a long time. And a lot of times it felt like shouting into a well. And I think one of the things that's happened as a result of all of the, the protests around George Floyd is a, a reexamination of you know who gets what. And I think venture capital has a long way to go as a business to being both more inclusive for fund managers like myself, but also downstream for entrepreneurs of color and women who've gotten some substantially less capital than I think they deserve. Do you think your firm has been maybe starved is too extreme, but, you know, starved to capital of capital to some extent or lost out uh, to others because you just, you know, you didn't kind of come up on people's radar? I think in many ways, I feel kind of the opposite. I think I had what should have been every advantage for a venture capitalist. I have two degrees from Stanford. I've been a partner at a previous fund for five years. Those are the things that ought to make your fundraise easy. If you look at the, the numbers of our industry, you know, spin out manager from an established platform. And it was significantly more difficult than I had expected. And I'll never know what was in people's hearts. There's part about there's parts about our business model that I know investors find challenging. But it's it's the hard part as a manager. You never know whether you're getting no's because people don't like your business model or whether it's there's something else. Yeah, and I know for even the companies that you invest in, they have a lot of uh, African Americans or Latino founders on the team. Has that been a specific priority of yours, or is it just happenstance? It's a specific priority, but it's more a function of our strategy than anything else. We're really focused on trying to find entrepreneurs where we think the market doesn't have a good handle on how to assess them. And we find consistently that female founders and founders of color tend to be underestimated by the broader venture community. So we found some real gems and stars using that approach. And, and it's, it tends to produce a portfolio that looks more diverse in terms of race and gender. Absolutely. Charles, it's good to have you here. Thanks so much. Thank you. Charles Hudson is the founder and managing partner of Precursor Ventures. And coming up in a rare TV interview, hedge fund manager Jonathan Litt will discuss us, talk about the big bets he's making against New York City real estate, commercial real estate, which he says is facing an existential hurricane. Don't miss it. The exchange is back in two. Welcome back from tenant trouble to reconfiguring whole buildings. Commercial real estate is getting hit hard as a result of this pandemic, and that has some investors ready to pounce. Leslie Picker joins me with more. Leslie? Hey, Kelly, that's right. It's been perhaps the big short of the current crisis that's shorting commercial real estate. The thought among hedge fund managers, which include Carl Icahn, is that the shutdown has decimated foot traffic in retailers and hotels, therefore limiting rent payments. And as millions have been working from home, employers are starting to rethink their office footprint as well. Now, one hedge fund manager in particular has been short commercial real estate in New York City. That's according to a recent Wall Street Journal article. He joins us now. Jonathan Litt is the founder and chief investment officer at Lannan Buildings. Hey, Jonathan, how are you doing? Hey, Leslie, it's good to see you. Okay, so according to the Journal article, it said that you were short Empire State Realty, SL Green Realty, and Vornado Realty. Shares of those companies are flat or higher since that article came out on May 22nd, but still down since the depths of the coronavirus crisis in mid-March. So are you still short these names, and are there others that you're betting against? 
Oh, we don't comment on shorts specifically. Um, I think the journal made it an assumption based upon what we wrote. But I think that New York is going to be very challenged on the office market and likely on the apartment market as well. Well, all things considered, you know, why do you think that those stocks have held up so well, um, you know, given your thesis about the New York City commercial real estate market? And, and what do you think would cause that to change? So, I mean, they're down a tremendous amount, and particularly from when we put our white paper out. Uh, and you can see that on our website, landandbuildings.com. Uh, but we, um, what's happening is the population in New York has been in decline. Uh, for about three years. It started, I think it was in 2016. So you're seeing the population declining. And that's really a function of the megatrend of millennials having families and moving to the suburbs. Um, that was accelerated with the Trump tax cuts, uh, which caused places like New York to be expensive to stay because you saw tax deduction elimination. And now with COVID, um, I think it's really going to accelerate. Uh, and um, when you think about New York, it's a supply and demand market. Uh, we have uh, 25 million square feet in the office being built. We have, you know, remember we work, uh, we work imploded uh, just uh, six months ago. Uh, and the co-working market, uh, they lease 15 million square feet, probably half or more of that's going to come back to the market. That alone is going to add 10 percent of supply at a time when leaders like Larry Fink and James Gorman of BlackRock and Warren Stanley are saying, hey, co-working is working. Uh, we're going to not have to have all this real estate uh, that we had in the past because more people are going to work from home in the future. And so I think you're going to see values come down materially. You're going to see rents come down materially uh, over the next uh, two to three years. Jonathan, it's Kelly here. I'm uh, one of the people who uh, moved out of Manhattan the last couple of years. So I, I absolutely understand what you're describing. Could you just confirm that you are short some uh, parts of the commercial real estate sector? We don't discuss shorts uh, specifically, but obviously uh, we are both long and short. Uh, and I think people who have read that piece could conclude uh, that we're, uh, we're short in the New York office market. All right. Yeah, I will. I'll leave it at that then, because I, I just want to make sure we're not misunderstanding. Uh, but I, I do want to ask you a follow up, because one one of the names yeah, in particular that you are very bearish on, you say it's poised to bear the full brunt of this storm, is Empire State Realty Trust. We actually spoke uh, with them last week. Here is what Anthony Malkin had to say when I asked him about some of the delayed rent payments and uh, the fact that some are now starting to catch back up. Listen. Tenants who can afford to pay their rent, we expect to pay their rent. We're up to 80 percent collections prior to the LVMH uh, payment that we received this morning for the collection of the month of April. We're ahead of April for May and the June collections are already in ahead of where we were in May. So we think that people are getting back in line. Is it possible that people are finding themselves in a better position that they than they feared a month or two ago? So New York office landlords have gotten 95 percent of their rent, the exception being Empire State, which uh, in the office component was at about 75. I think it's now at 80. Their retail component is in the 20s or 30s. I don't remember exactly. Uh, and their um, observation deck on the top of Empire State building, that's 25 percent of their NOI uh, is now at zero. Uh, and so they've got unique challenges. They have smaller tenants, older buildings, uh, more garment-oriented, um, uh, apparel-oriented. Um, so I think they're uniquely uh, going to have a challenge. Now, they might get, catch up on rent now, but what's going to happen when those leases expire and people are working from home? They'll go, you know what, I'm going to give up that space. I'll work from home or I'll move to a different location. 
But I want to point out, one of the things that we do uh, at Land of Buildings is we'll send photographers into markets to see what's happening. And New York opened Monday last week. This Saturday, we sent photographers to Fifth Avenue, to Times Square, and to Grand Central. And you can see it. It's on our Twitter feed at John Litt. Uh, and what you'll see there is really desolate. There's nobody out. Now, the weekend before, we were in Las Vegas when they opened Vegas. Um, and there were queues of registration. The blackjack tables were full. The slot machines were full. People are really staying away from New York City. And I only think that's going to uh, that's gonna persist. Now, it's not going to be as bad as it is now. It can't be. Uh, and it will come back. And New York is always going to be a center of activity. Uh, but all it takes is a 1% or 2% change in demand to have a very material impact on valuations. Now, uh, Jonathan, speaking of valuations, there's obviously been a lot of disintermediation that's resulted from the current crisis that we're seeing. Uh, is there anywhere that you see opportunity? And as uh, an activist investor, are there any strategies that you would recommend to management in those companies in which you would consider or maybe long in uh, in order to change things to to capitalize, uh, you know, on some of this current environment? So, you know, what's fascinating is while we're seeing this weakness in apartments in Manhattan, in office in Manhattan, uh, and, and really across the country in apartments, uh, with rents going down, occupancies going down, we're seeing very strong demand for single-family home rentals. Uh, we have an activist campaign now in a company called American Home for Rent, uh, and they're seeing a 3 4 5% revenue bump since COVID as people are rushing to lease homes. Uh, because they don't want to be in those millennials that want to move out. They want to control their space. They want a backyard. Uh, and we're seeing occupancies going up. We're seeing rents going up. We think American Homes is extremely well positioned. And we have an activist campaign there because we think the margins are weak. Uh, and we think that they could drive better returns going forward. Fascinating. And I'm, I'm, I'm seeing the pictures you mentioned on Twitter now. Jonathan, how do you only have 748 followers? You're like the best kept secret on Twitter. <laughs> this is a new strategy that was recommended. Uh, to us very recently, so uh, hopefully that'll build. Well, I will be following with interest, uh, so that's 749. Uh, Jonathan and Leslie, thanks very much. It is a fascinating unpacking of everything that's going on in our society right now. We appreciate it very much. Really, thank you. And coming up, shares of Spotify are a bright spot today, getting a boost from their new partnership with Walmart. We will have those full details next. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to The Exchange. These aren't the markets you saw this morning. Uh, we've seen a huge reversal. The Dow is down 762 points at the lows, but it's now only down 98. The S&P is flat after being down 2.5%. And as Mike Santoli pointed out, top of the hour, at the lows this morning, the S&P was down 8% for the week. So, again, it's a huge comeback. Also kind of changes the dynamic of the sell-off over the past several sessions. The Nasdaq is now positive. And there's a new partnership in the retail space to tell you about with Walmart tapping e-commerce giant Shopify. Sorry that I said Spotify. It's Shopify, obviously, uh, to expand Walmart's online marketplace. Walmart saying it's looking to add 1,200 small to medium-sized Shopify sellers to its platform, hoping to cash in on the pandemic-driven jump in online shopping. Shopify shares are up 6.5%. Walmart is up about a quarter of a percent today. And Shopify, man, I mean, you always hear about it from Jim Cramer, but it is a performer, and its shares have nearly doubled this year, up 97%. Still ahead, stocks are selling off again today, and it's beginning to look a lot like the late 90s again. We'll tell you what that means for volatility next. Coming up on Power Lunch, we'll talk to the owner of the Sacramento Kings about the return of sports, if it is coming, and how tech might help get fans back into stadiums someday. The Exchange is back in two.
stocks are rallying back from another huge sell-off in the market and another roller coaster day. We were down more than 700 at the lows. But billionaire investor Leon Cooperman is blaming these wild swings on speculation. Here's what he said on half. I think the Robinhood market is, uh, you know, a second market where a lot of crazy things are being done. And it's almost understandable. You know, the government is giving you more money to stay at home than go to work. Okay, uh, the gambling casinos are closed. You get the Fed is promising you free money for the next two years. So let them speculate. So let them buy and trade. And I, I think from my experience, this kind of stuff will end in tears. Well, joining me now with more on the return of day traders is Tavis McCourt. He's institutional equity analyst at Raymond James. Tavis, welcome. And you're also picking up on this phenomenon. I mean, does it remind you of the late 1990s? Uh, yeah, it hasn't lasted as long, obviously, but um, certainly the same kind of fingerprints are, are on the market the last several weeks as, as we saw back in the late 90s. And what do you think? I mean, Leon Cooperman had a number of factors that he uh, mentioned. I, I believe he mentioned sports, but I know that you certainly think the lack of sports betting might be pushing people here. And, and we know that uh, not just with the high profile uh, cases, but, you know, anecdotally, you just look around and you see people interested in stocks and able to use these kind of commission free platforms for the first time. Yeah, well, I think it's a confluence of a lot of factors, right? You've got commission free uh, platforms available broadly. Uh, you've got a lot of folks at home um, and uh, looking for something to do, and you've got legitimately a an economy that's recovering faster than most would have thought uh, six weeks ago. And so we'll see if that continues. But um, I think all those things are coming together to kind of create this this perfect storm right now. Do you think this will be a lasting phenomenon? Uh, you know, I would hope part of it. I mean, I mean, you know, the last twenty years, ever since. Since the late 90s, um, you know, the stock market's been a little boring, in, in effect. <laughs> um, so I, I, think the, I, think, I think hopefully there'll be, there'll be some of these investors um, that, uh, that stick around and, um, and, and continue to, uh, to invest in the market and, and take an interest in the market, which, you know, really took a nosedive after, after 2000 and then took a bigger nosedive after, after 2009. And so... Um, you know, I, I hope it does at least, at least a little bit, but I think the speculative part of it, um, you know, I think we, we did a, a quick study. I think the average stock trading under a dollar per share was up 54% in just the first eight trading days of June. Um, that part that part of it won't stick around, um, but but hopefully the part of it where people are taking a, a more of an interest in, in, uh, in owning uh, securities uh, uh, sticks around. Yeah, no, I absolutely echo that, and I think that – if anything, calling this market boring is generous because it's it's crushed people. You know, like you said, they lost their shirts in dot-com. They lost their shirts in the Great Recession um, and then sat on the sidelines for an entire decade while the market just climbed back and back. How much of this goes back to the Federal Reserve? And, and do you think people do have uh, the perception, maybe correctly, that anything they do is going to be backstopped by the Fed? Uh, yeah, I think, you know, frankly, that was also the case in 2009 through 2014. Um, and it helps, but I, I think that the, 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 the action that's not getting as much media attention is just the incredible amount of fiscal spending that's going on right now that's allowing people to, 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 to basically be at home uh, and make more money than, than they did when they were working. And so um, it, it's, uh, it, it's, a, it's a really interesting dance that the, that the government's going to have to do to pull back this fiscal support as as the economy comes back and as jobs come back, yeah. 
but I think um, I, th- I think that's probably the aspect of this which is really different than, than 2009-2010, is that on top of the monetary support, uh, you've, you've got this, this fiscal support, which is just, um, it, it's unheard of. It, it, it's, it's by far the most beneficiary in the world, which is not usual for, <laughs> for, for a U.S. Uh, government reaction. So, so I think that's also playing a, a, a very big role. Yeah, we, uh, we're out of time. To have, I, I don't think this you know, can, can last as a force in the stock market. Maybe that's the conversation for next time uh, you know, as to whether it can keep this rally going in and of itself. Uh, but like I said, we'll have you back and we appreciate the info. Thanks for joining us. Great. All Bye-bye. Tavis McCourt of Raymond James talking about the return of the day traders. And that does it for us here on The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.